0: listening to The Running Public.
1: From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal, get to the finish line faster. That's right, this podcast
0: is for you guys, The Running Public.
1: Button's been pushed, we're in it. Kirk, I did a hill workout on, what day is it today, Friday? I did it on Wednesday. Went out and hit some hill work and stair work at Lapham Peak. Not a massive climb. I was going bottom to top. I was trying to run it about at threshold, but it's almost impossible to run stairs at threshold. You're either super anaerobic or you're Mm -hmm. not working. So I was tipped way over, but it was taking me about a minute to get to the top. So just a one-minute stair and hill interval, and then jog down recovery and then i did a little extended cool down and i am so sore after that cabs and quads so sore feeling like i ran a mountain ultra and it's because i haven't touched a hill since tennessee mile haven't done a single hill and i was feeling real good about myself mm-hmm. and then i got a text from you <laughs> and it said i ran a nine oh eight two mile today
0: but who's paying attention? 9.06, sorry.
1: (laughs) And I said, what? And you sent me your Strava. Yeah. And you ran a 9.06 two-mile running downhill on pavement. And you closed that two-mile out. And this was not just a two-mile. This was in the middle of a workout. You ran a 4.26 second mile (laughs) in that that two-mile. I did. And suddenly all the good endorphins I had <laughs> about my... Look, I knocked the rust off. This is hill workout one towards my my Ireland mountain ultra. <laughs> I am just on the right track. And I look over and Kirk just ran a 426 mile downhill in pave, on pavement and in speed goats, not even a fast shoe. And I'm over here destroyed. And you did this a few days after a race. So you just took... All my hopes and dreams and feel goods, and you shattered them with one
0: text. Well, I would argue, and we haven't discussed this, that I am more crippled than you are today. Oh, really? Bracken, I am so sore from this effort that, okay, I ran downhill so hard. First of all, it was a 16 mile run, and I climbed and descended the same peak three times on concrete. It was about 1300 feet of gain each climb and each descent, I decided to do a little harder each time. So the first time I descended just over five minute pace. So I think my two mile is like five or 10 Oh something next one. 1300
1: I was like, feet to the top. How many miles?
0: Two and a half. Exactly. So,
1: so two and a half. What effort up
0: six, the first time, eight, the second time and nine, the third time. What was your rest at the top? None. I turned Did right
1: you ran a 9.08 two-mile coming downhill after running a 9 out of 10 effort up the two-and-a-half-mile climb?
0: Yeah, but there's an asterisk. So I, I knew that I wanted to run hard on the way down, but I it's two-and-a-half up. So I said, I'm going to somewhat recover for the first half-mile down and then hit two nice, even, fast miles Hard as heck on the way. So I I did give myself some recovery that first half mile descent. Does that make sense? You
1: were 14 miles into the workout when you ran 908.
0: Yeah, but it was downhill on concrete. But the point I'm getting at is I was so, I'm so sore, Bracken, from running so hard downhill. Let's leave my legs out of this. My traps and my biceps (laughs) are, I mean, I lift weights, right? Because of like the pounding and the bracing of my upper body, my, my elbow crease, like where my bicep head inserts into my elbows are like I did a million bicep curls yesterday. And my traps are so tight that I have a headache today from like that hard pumping eccentric motion going downhill. My legs are fried.
1: Biceps were just like swinging and getting snapped against your te- over and over and over. 100%. And like
0: jarring. I had to hold that static 90 degree position so intensely at that at that eccentric pounding that I was doing like an isometric hold of my, my biceps on those descents. I couldn't put it together. It's the best I can come up with. I, the think? workout
1: blows me away. <laughs> I'm so glad you're destroyed.
0: because <laughs> I'm miserable. I was
1: destroyed by 10 by one minute hard up easy down on stairs because I haven't used that. My body in that way in a while. <laughs> You ran 426 downhill as you, what, you're like your 16th mile. I did. Oh, it just hurts my heart. But that's but downhill. It my heart. But my point is, we both ran hills. And I did like 35 minutes of work and you did 16
0: miles. So but
1: it's nice to always be reminded
0: that there are levels. To- but did you have a previous race's frustration to get out of your system? I did. It worked. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm running scared right now, trying to cram in to get ready for seven plus hours on feet, and you're running angry right now,
0: yeah, I ran the anger out of me now i'm now I'm back to it's just gone. even get, yeah, that blew it right out. <laughs> yeah, it's
1: tough to be angry when you can't
0: walk it's all, It's true, jess we, I went for a um I was like, well, it's the last morning here on vacation. this was yesterday, and I said, well, I'm gonna go for a run. this is the day after that, which I should have taken off. And out of the driveway of our Airbnb is about 400 feet of descent on concrete. You have to go up or down. There's no other choice. There's no flat roads. I was running 10-minute pace downhill. And she's like, I almost took a video of you because you looked like something was wrong with you. I was trying to run downhill to start at 7 a.m., cold, 24 hours after doing that workout. I thought I was going to shatter my hips or my, like in muscle insertions. Cause I was so sore and stiff. It was absolutely miserable. Got on a th- two hour drive to LAX. And then a three hour flight home. When I got off of that plane last night, I almost fell over when I went to like, you know, get up quick to grab my luggage overhead. And there's people behind you. Mm-hmm. I felt stupid. I looked like an idiot. The woman next to me needed a wheelchair. She was, um, elderly. And so it was a process and started making jokes about maybe maybe stealing hers so i get myself off the plane. So that should make you feel better.
1: It does. And you good. and I have a, uh, a disadvantage when it comes to having sore legs because we're both bow-legged mm-hmm. a little bit. And sore bow-legged is not a good look.
0: Is that worse? We, well- <laughs> we
1: wear it out on our sleeve when when our legs are trashed. Yeah, it's not, it's not There's good. There's no smooth way to walk bow-legged
0: when you're sore. Yeah, we are both a little bull legged, huh? It's like that. Remember, you'd like the you, you see like the old man in jeans and he's got a little bit of a saggy butt and his knees are. Mm-hmm. He looks like he just got off a horse. We're not that bad. We're oh. somewhere in the middle between like normal and then that guy.
1: Yeah, that's true. Ayla followed me down the stairs at one point today. She said, are you really sore? I said, yeah. She said, I saw you walking like that after Tennessee.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, except I worked for Five and a half hours less to get this way today.
0: What shoes did you wear?
1: I went with the um now what are they called? Merrill All Out Crush. Hmm. I believe. They're an old an old trail shoe. They're basically like a, a minimal road road flat, but they're, they're 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 they were Merrill's response to the reebok all terrain. Just a firm rubber bottom, no real cushioning, and a meshy top. So it was day one of wearing minimal shoes and go beat my legs up.
0: I believe that's the shoe I was given for the initial Tough Mudder X. They gave us a yes. They you gave the us black and orange. They gave us three options of Merrell's because they were one of the title sponsors of the first Tough Mudder X, and I bought those shoes. I ended up wearing them in Tahoe the next year. I really liked that shoe. Mm-hmm. Did yeah. you have the boa or the non-boa? I don't know. I don't
1: know what I had boa dial like instead of laces oh no it was laces okay that's what i have too they had a boa version which i really like boa in shoes but they positioned it terribly and it just hurt everyone's feet
0: Mm. yeah i've never actually used a shoe with that system hence why i didn't know what that was called Mm, do you uh do you want to make an apology to the to the running public why they're stuck with just us two again today
1: well now i have to because you called me out they didn't have to know now they do well, time zones are tricky, people, <laughs> and uh, and I screwed the time zone up today. So we had we were supposed to have Ida this week, but she was traveling back, and we couldn't connect. So I think next week we'll have Ida, but Ryland Shoteg was generous with his time and had it booked out for us this morning, and I don't know time zones. So I confirmed with him one time, and in my mind, I was doing a different time. So we got a text an hour after he thought he was going to be starting and said, Hey, I still haven't received a link. I was like, We're gonna send it in like twenty minutes. Don't worry about it, guy.
0: <laughs> My fault. Yeah, we were gonna talk return from injury and some spicy stuff with him, but you're getting us today. Sorry, Rylan. Sorry, people.
1: But he was very gracious, th- but it's because he's a polite person. I'm sure he's frustrated with us. Me yeah. in particular.
0: Yeah, I, I feel like I'm I told a- me it was you. Did you? That's fine. We got a good relationship. But I think we have a...
1: Kirk screwed this up again. Sorry, man. It's hard to work with this guy.
0: After 200 episodes, 200 and some episodes, and we often schedule with people in other time zones, I'd say more often than people in our own time zone, still bites us once in a while. And if it's not us, sometimes it's our... Stevens is tricky. Sometimes it's our gas. Sometimes we've had that happen too, where then they get it mixed up. Yeah. But I think we have a good alternative for you today, don't we?
1: Yeah, we're going to have a little a little chat here. What, what happens every time you get a bunch of athletes together and they they sit down for a meal or to hang out? What what inevitably ends up happening? We uh, all just tell old war stories. hmm And when you go to an OCR event or a trail event or a road event, Afterwards, it doesn't matter what level of competition you're at because we've seen almost every competition except for like true world class that we've been a part of. It doesn't matter, and we've had those guys at races with us, whether you're an entry level you know forty minute five k runner to a a twelve and a half minute five k runner. Everyone tells old race stories, and that's the best part of the weekend sometimes. I think that's what we're gonna do today.
0: I like that idea. I like that idea a lot. And I think the cool thing about running or racing compared to other sports is it's non-discrepant as to your ability level, meaning like everybody has access to running, whether you're the fastest in the world or you're legit the slowest in the world. We all still sort of have the same understanding of the experience, right? So it like crosses ability levels, like the ability to bullshit and tell stories and learn lessons – it doesn't discrep it. Dis, there's no discrepancy between the best and the worst. And it's kind of cool. Broadens the horizons. We all have them. Like, I can't relate to Aaron Rodgers on a on a football bullshit session. I'll never understand. But every single one of you can understand. And that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. So what we want to do today is take you back through our timeline as a racer. Uh, for a couple of reasons. One, is going to be fun and entertaining, I think. But two is that he, Kirk and I both had a bunch of athletes race last weekend and the weekend before and because people have been taking running more seriously and had a good off season they're taking their race strategy a lot more seriously but along with that the more time you put into training the more you think about your strategy the easier it is to get thrown off when things don't go well and i and we want to take some time here to share like our our bolded timeline plot points along our life, our best races, our worst races, our breakthroughs, our learning points, and show what was happening during those races. Because as you're going to see, very few times does everything just come together. Oh. And I think that's really important to remember.
0: More more defeats than victories along the way. And even
1: in even in the victories, you're going to see that most of the time, You're not aware you're going to have a victory (laughs) until it like suddenly wraps up with a nice bow at the end. A lot of the times it feels like a defeat until it's not. And we had a bunch of athletes and me in particular who were thrown off by something in the race because it wasn't going well. And they forecasted how it was going to go after that point. Mm -hmm. And I think some, a little bit of perspective here, Kirk and I aren't the most intelligent men in the world. I don't think either of us would ever make that claim. We're not the most learned. We don't have the most degrees. We don't have the biggest stable of athletes. But we've raced as much as most people can possibly race in their lives by the time they're in their mid to late 30s. There are some people who've outraced us, of course, but mm-hmm. we've been racing since we were in middle school. We have 20 plus years of race experience. And for many of those years, we raced a lot. So we just have a lot of time on feet going through a lot of the battles that you're... Going through now, and we'd like to give you a little bit more armor and protection going into those battles. We already learned the hard way, maybe you guys can shortcut some of that.
0: And uh, we still will learn the hard way. I'm a a subject study of one recently, you know, so yeah, it's never gonna end for you sure. Don't win learning, <laughs> it's so you true. Beat knowledge, you it's just so keep true. Progressing, mm hmm. And I think this is also timely because. Um, talking about like, yeah, sharing stories, lessons learned. There was so much anticipation going into like the first big race of the year. You want to like unveil your new fitness. What has my training really done for me? And. And really you don't have a clue as to what you're going to learn until you're out on the race course sometimes. And so everybody puts it under a microscope and likes to overanalyze how things are going. And I feel like everybody's mind, whether the race went great or poorly, everybody's wheels are spinning now as to like how to take that knowledge that they've learned mostly failures and move forward. Right? Like it's just top of mind. Everybody's trying to rejig the training puzzle piece. Um, And let's be honest, it's nice to relate to people and and hear about their failures and successes too, because it's, there's relatability and hope there. But I just think more timely than ever, like, you know, you said something in one of the last podcasts about like, don't don't deviate from the plan just because you had a bad race. Don't hop training styles or give up or change your whole scope of things because you had a bad race or a good race. It doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. But I think just reminding people that, uh, you know, this is all part of the process and Um, You're right where you should be is what I'm kind of getting at. And so we will begin it.
1: This isn't the point of this, but of this episode. In fact, I don't think we're going to spend a lot of time talking on training too much today. However, your don't deviate from the plan got me thinking there was an uphill (laughs) athlete post. Today, I believe okay yeah today up the uphill athlete and that is the group behind um that book that we like training for the uphill athlete and it has the mm-hmm. heart rate tests and all that stuff so yep. anyway so we had had a question about this how much time is too much time in base well here's here's the, the, a little post i just want to read off part of it um this is niles Vanderpool. he's the one who won the 5,000 and 10,000 meter um speed skating in in beijing at the most recent Olympics. So mm-hmm. he won the double, which is like just like track running. The 5000 10000 double is tough, but the greats have all gone after it. In his training, he released uh like 3 years of Strava training after the Olympics and said, "Here's what uh, everything I did leading up to it." Mom, here's a quote from him. From May 2019 until August 2020, I abstained from competitions on ice. And instead aimed my powers at developing a strong aerobic base that enabled me to, later on, perform more high-intensity work than ever before. The physical ability that enabled my success was a very strong aerobic base. And then Uphill Athlete goes on to talk that that's 15 months of of build. Now, it doesn't mean he didn't go anaerobic during that time, but he didn't compete. And he focused on aerobic development for 15 months And he won in 12 and a half minutes. And he was averaging 30 hours of work per week in those 15 months. So you talk about following the script.
0: That's following a plan.
1: My goodness. trusting
0: that it's going to come together down the road. Could you imagine having like a new athlete inquire about coaching with you? And you hear their backstory and you're like, you know what this guy just needs is some time on feet. So what I'm going to tell you to do now that you're on board with my coaching program is we're not going to compete in your sport of choosing for the next year and a half. That's the step one. You imagine pulling the plug on somebody like that. They, would, they wouldn't they would buy into it at all. They'd find a new coach. Yet here you have the best in the world, one of the best to ever do it, on the ice. Yeah. Abstain from his chosen sport competition for 15 months. Why? Imagine...
1: The ramifications if he had been knocked out in the prelims. Oh my goodness! Think of what would have happened in that 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 Olympic committee or in his uh, his training center, the coach, the support staff, him heads were going to
0: roll. Hmm. But you know but, what? Not that we need to go too far down that rabbit hole, but the the bigger your base, like when you build something like that, the significantly less chance you have of showing up on. Race day and laying an egg, meaning like because he's so strong, he developed so much strength over that 15 months that even if he shows up and his body decides to not give him his best day for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. it's only going to be so bad because he's just too strong. That's the whole beauty of base building is your your bad day isn't nearly as bad as it could be, but the potential of your good day is greater than it ever has been. And when you're strong like that with a foundation, you just don't lay eggs you don't. So I think that was the not it's not as risky as it might sound, but
1: well, and we talked about this briefly before your race with the concept of the stronger you are as a runner. And we use strength to really mean staying power. Right. The bigger your engine, the more strength and staying power you have. It doesn't necessarily change the way you feel early on. You just don't crumble and you're able to stay strong later. Yep. And so my belief is that bad days often start with just not feeling as good and we allow it to go bad. But when you have that huge engine and you have confidence in it, you can weather the bad starts and still have great days or even just passable good days because you get through the bad feeling early on. I personally don't believe the body has off days. I believe things either go wrong or they don't. Like if you're sick, there's something going on internally. Mm-hmm. If you're overtrained, if you have, Something going on inside your body, sure, but I don't believe in random off days. You know, I just didn't have it today. I I know people say that, but I don't buy it. I believe you either have something wrong with you or you have a false feeling early on that will fade if you stay the course. But as the machine goes, I don't believe in unexplained things happening in the body on race day that just make you have a bad day. I've even said that after races. I, don't, I just don't think I had it today, but I can guarantee that when I look back at, like, if I look back objectively, I say, yeah, I felt crappy the first two miles and I let myself check out. And right. I've had just as many races where I felt crappy, but I knew I was in such good shape. I just kept plugging away and then ended up cranking it up. And then at some point felt good. I think you have false bad days or you have something actually wrong with you. But when you're so highly trained, I just don't think bad days occur.
0: Mm-hmm. You either I,
1: have a mental issue or you're actually broken down internally.
0: Yeah, I share that sentiment. The tricky thing is like sometimes you don't always know. Like, You may have had a bad day and still can't put a finger on it. Like, oh, I no shit, I developed a fever later that night. Or I, you know, like those things are kind of tricky. But I right. agree with you. Usually it's our mind that's going to let us go. Even if you do have a sluggish day, um, when your mind just allows that to be, you know, the case for the day, then then things go downhill. I agree with you there. But regardless I mean, as to I'm that.
1: Right. That's just my mindset. I'm not mm. saying bad days don't exist. I'm saying my mindset has to be there are no bad days. So if I feel like I'm having a bad day, ignore it because it's going to come back around. But the volume of training your engine gives you the protection to ignore it until it comes back around. If you don't have that engine like he built up, then, yeah, bad days go bad real quickly.
0: Yep. That's exactly I was just going to reiterate that sentiment, so you beat me to it. Well, shall we turn back the clock? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Well, this is your baby. Why don't you kick us off?
1: Well, I think there's a lot of places you could start in my running career, but I don't think that I learned anything significant until I was training. I think the only thing I learned before I was training – that actually impacted me later was when I won my first race by sitting and kicking and it became my MO cause my coach told me never take the lead and or don't take the lead until you feel you're ready to keep it. And mm-hmm. I took that to heart and I took that too far down the road for decades. That became my Achilles heel was not committing to a pace early. But my belief is that you don't actually truly learn truth in a race until you're fit going in or until you've put in training that you thought you were fit going in. Does that make sense? Like in middle school, I knew I wasn't training much, and we were just showing up and racing. And in high school, we trained in season, and we didn't out of season. But in college, I first started showing up either thinking I was in shape and finding out I wasn't, or knowing I was in shape and learning lessons during the race. But until you actually have a read on on thinking you're training correctly, I don't know if any of my lessons count of course Does that make they... any
0: sort of sense to you? It makes perfect sense, but of course they count. because They count, but they may not be real. Well, maybe for you, but I would guess that there's a quarter to half of our listeners who are significantly undertrained and going out there and racing races. They have no business going out there and actually racing or having a chance of racing close to their potential and i think you know 10 percent are like the blind leading the blind they're just going off of feel and whims and then they show up and you know a three-hour race is the most miserable two hours and 55 minutes of their life and they finish dead last and can't figure out why well the writing's on the wall so i would argue like when we when we set this up when we were talking before we we started recording My first lessons, like, I think relate to the untrained athlete or the, I don't know, not appropriately trained athlete more than any. Like when you said, you set this up for me before we started recording, but like, think about like a timeline, like here's your life and here's your death. And where are the highlights or lowlights of your running career? Like mine start like completely untrained. And I don't know. I still think that they resonate today with me. And I think other people like, Never had a college coach, never had a high school run program. And so I don't know. I have a feeling there's, (laughs) there's some people that were clueless going into their first races and still are that, I don't know, are learning. Don't you think?
1: Yeah. Well, I I get a sense then that you're going to start a little earlier than me. So I'm going to start as a junior in high school. Okay. My very first cross country race of the year, my junior year, I felt fit. I was I was kind of crushing workouts. There were three of us, Jeff Claves, Chris Gunderson, and myself. We were good friends. We were the same age. And we did all we were the three best guys on our team. And we had always traded off spots. Each season it was someone's year. Like they were in better shape, or you know how it is, you get rolling and then you're untouchable. Well, I realized this is my year. I'm I'm beating these guys in workouts. And I was always a competitor. I, was a, um, I wasn't a workout warrior. I would exceed my workouts in races. And for the first time as a junior, I was winning workouts, which doesn't need to be a thing. But I felt I was running the effort correctly, and I was every rep I was leading. So we get to the race, and I fire off right in the lead. I get up with this
0: pack. What race is it? I'm,
1: this is cross country. It's a
0: 5K. Cross, oh, at cross country. Okay. Okay. I didn't know it's if you were talking track or cross country. Sorry. Got cross it. Cross country. And
1: I had run 17.05. No, no, no. That's not true. I'd run 17.24 as a sophomore. But my workouts, I was running 10 seconds, 15 seconds per mile faster in all my workouts. And I was going to come out and I was going to break 17 that first race. And I knew that. And I start running and I can't feel a thing. Just effortless. Effortless. Mm -hmm. And I'm just using this bouncy, pretty stride up front. Someone moved to lead. I went right up next to him. Next person moved to lead. I went right up next to him. Half mile in. I can hear every person in the crowd. I'm looking at them. I'm seeing them. I see a a group of girls up there that were the upper, the the seniors. And I wanted to look good running past them. And I clean up my stride and get even a little bit more bouncier and look super confident. And I'm just thinking, wow, they know I've arrived. My grandpa and my mom and dad are at the next turn at the 1200 and I'm coming through like this I'm not even breathing yet. going through the mile probably 508. Just calm. Like like I hadn't even started my warm-up, still tied for first, maybe second. And we start making our way around a baseball diamond and it has just a slight grade. And by the time we got 300 meters later, I realized I made a terrible mistake. And for the next mi- uh, two and a quarter miles. Eh, about two. Next two miles, I did nothing but get slower and go backwards. <laughs> and I think I finished up running like 1748, and I went out at 508. Oh, my goodness. 508 painful. is like, what, sixteen oh, sixteen
0: ten 16.10 pace, something like that? mm mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's 508, would, first be 508
1: would be like 15.55 pace. I don't know. Cross-country, I think you add like 40 seconds for the last.
0: Okay. Right about 16. Minutes it doesn't here. really matter. Yeah. 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 Low 16s. <clears throat> How'd that stride look the last mile, Bracken?
1: So terrible. And what I learned that day is you cannot believe your own hype to the point that you stop following logic. And you cannot believe the way your stride feels for the first half mile of a race. Mm-mm. If it feels crappy, who cares? And if it feels good, don't lean into that. Use it to retract a little bit. Like, hey, I'm kind of on one right now. Let's, if I can run 508 pace right now with 90% effort, what, what could I try to retract a little, run 510 pace at 80% effort? Could I like pull in a little and conserve? But instead, I leaned into it and I blew up spectacularly. But because I knew I was the man, I thought this, I read into everything as a justification rather than as a potential warning, like, So I found out that day you just can't do anything in the first half mile of a race that is going to guarantee success later, Mm. other than make sure you don't blow up.
0: That's a lesson that I think everybody listening has learned. Now, I want to follow that up before I get to myself with what happened after that in your subsequent races.
1: Well, I was terrified then.
0: Suddenly Of, my of looking like shaking. an idiot.
1: Well, yeah, because everyone knows that person who looks great and runs too hard and then blows up, and everyone's like, "Yep, you went out too hard." And because I always considered myself like a cerebral athlete, it ate at me that I would make such a dumb mistake. But I truly mm. thought that's who I was.
0: You no, know, it's like but the version. It raced, it's
1: a version of the people.
0: Adrenaline. You you're exactly. You know those people who are like super self unaware. They have no idea they're talking too loud in a room or they won't leave you alone when it's obvious you're in a rush to get somewhere. That's like the runner's version of lacking self-awareness. Like you're so unaware yeah. of your true abilities that you're disconnected from the circumstance completely and you go too hard and die home. It's kind of the most embarrassing, especially if it repeats itself. You're allowed to make those mistakes early on, but when that repeats yeah. itself, you're like the version of like a unaware person. Does that make sense? You don't want it to does. be that person.
1: But I hadn't felt the sting of a race in a while. Yeah. And and I'd been sitting there in class writing splits down on my bracelet or on my notebook. Like, if I get through in this, then all I have to do is this. And you start to look at it like in a math problem, and you forget the actual cost of what you're writing down. If you I just forget- get through two seconds faster, I can cruise a little bit through mile two and then just crank it back down. And I got through in a pace, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm even more ahead. I'm like six seconds ahead of where I could be. I banked that. and. That's not the way the body works. And I got too caught up in trying to ma- make it sterile. I hadn't raced. I let my off-season fitness cloud my judgment of what a race should feel like. And that was the, also the start of, you need to start imagining bad things in races when you daydream. I'd only imagined feeling like a, I don't know, like a deer just prancing over the grass. Nothing affects me. This crazy fast finish. I was, I was that young kid with this first taste of of I'm about to be something, and I forgot to worry about everything else that comes along with racing. It was so embarrassing, Kirk.
0: So, where did that season end up for you, though? Let's talk. I just want to hear hear that out. Still, like, so that year, I ended up running
1: seventeen oh five. So you so I didn't went from improve from twenty four okay to seventeen oh five. And that first race, I was like 17.48. So I cut 43 seconds off that race. But that first race, I was pretty sure I was in sub-17 shape, and I never even got there. Which, looking back, I didn't make the connection yet, but was the first indication that I'm better at intervals than I am at mm-hmm. steady effort. I could fudge the numbers in a workout that made, would predict me to be faster than I am because I have good speed. I had no staying power you get recovery after an interval, I can work it pretty good and recover. And that was one of my strengths. Even back then I could recover quick. That's part of what helped me in OCR. Give me a short little break and I can get back to running at a high capacity. But the uninterrupted running never caught up with my interval work.
0: Yeah. Now that I know what I know, like you'd be such a candidate for no such thing as true rest between intervals, the active recovery jog, the short yeah. rest that's what would have moved the needle for you further but in high school it's so structured it's like intervals rest intervals rest and it's generous rest a lot of the times to help you run yeah, faster we're doing yeah.
1: two to three minute rest between 800s four to five minute rest between miles that's yeah. great for people who need to work hard and rest i needed to do like threshold training all through high school Yep,
0: yeah. yep. Yeah. well i can parallel your stories a bit and now that I'm, you're walking me through it about how sort of the demise eventually maybe was your coach saying, don't take the lead until you know you can keep it, mm-hmm. and then becoming a sit- sitter and a kicker. Um, that ended up being my case as well. Now, I'm going to go back to before being truly trained at all, but the sentiment would be the um, – you know, self-unaware child who had no idea how to pace himself or what his he was really able to bring to the table, and that was um, the Hershey's track meet that came to Green Bay. We talked about this once on the podcast, but um, the Hershey's track meet. And for those of you who don't know, I remember the Hershey's thing. Is that still a thing, Bracken? Do you know?
1: I haven't heard that word in a while. But you remember this? Junior Olympics now. Do you,
0: do you remember this yeah. when you were younger? So the Hershey's system was basically – a local, then a regional, then a national level track meet for kids basically. And, and I believe it was, was it put on by the chocolate brand? I don't even remember, but the, I think so. Yeah. I think I it was were chocolate
1: bars for winning.
0: Yeah. It, it was tied to the Hershey's, which sounds ridiculous now that you think, think about it, but the, yeah. the, the national track meet would happen in Hershey, Pennsylvania, which I think it's Pennsylvania. Correct me if I'm wrong there, but anyways. And so, if you ended up making it, you got like a paid tri- trip if you made the national meet mm-hmm. to go out and have this experience. Pennsylvania. Yeah, and so this is pre-internet days. I think I was in fourth grade, and there was an article in the newspaper about the Hershey track meet coming to Little Green Bay, Wisconsin, which is you know, a city of 100,000 people. And so my dad was a runner. My mom knew that, and my parents were divorced at the time. But my mom was like, you should go and do this. Hershey track meet. She didn't know anything about training. I ran around in the yard all day. I was in shape enough. And you could have run anything, the 400, the 800, and I think it capped at the mile. Um, And I believe that oldest age was like 14 or something. It was for younger, like the younger middle school generation, I believe, or younger. And so... I uh, went there and it was this hot sunny day and I was going to do the mile and that just seemed so long. And it was later in the day and this track meet took forever because you're trying to organize a bunch of young kids who, you know, that's a gong show. And so I decided to do the 800 meters instead because it came sooner in this track meet. And I thought that made the most sense. And they put all of us together, which I understand in hindsight is a mistake. Like kids that were eight to 14, right? You were in your age group. Like it, it didn't matter. And So I was one of the younger ones or was older kids in that race. Anyways, um, I believe I, in hindsight, I think I ran something like 320, 330 maybe in this Hershey track meet 800 meters. And I believe I had to have opened in like a 75 at the time, maybe an 80. And uh, I walked the last straightaway because I could no longer use my body believe I cried coming across the finish line. I had led everybody for that first quarter mile thinking I was going to change the world and it hit so hard it was the most deflating experience of my life. I was so embarrassed that I fast forward to 5th grade, 6th grade, 7th grade, I was asked to go out for track and cross country repeatedly and I said no. I was so scared of that happening to me again that I I couldn't bear to do it. Fast forward finally I run a gym class mile in 540 and my and the coach got wind of this and said you need to come out for track and my dad was encouraging me he was a state champion in high school and to see his son not run was probably hard for him so I said fine eighth grade I think I' had shown up for a few practices they just it's it was a pretty loose program. I don't know about for you in middle school how loose your program was. Mine was very. Very One loose. One coach for every event. Yeah, we ran on a cinder track. That's what we had. I mean, that's old school. We right?
1: trained on a playground. We okay. had painted tra- a painted track. I don't know how long it was on the asphalt.
0: <clears throat> well, <laughs> that sounds about right. That's, that's bizarre. I haven't thought of that in years. Yeah, well... So I go out, and I can't even sleep. I am so nervous, nervous beyond, like, comprehension for a middle school track meet coming up. And Coach puts me in the 400 meters this time. And I was showing glimpses of hope in practice. I was beating most of the kids and things that didn't matter. And what do you know, Bracken? History repeats itself, but even on a bigger scale. I go out so hard. There's video evidence of this through 200 meters. And I basically can't even run the last 50 meters. I was leading at 200, I think I take fifth place. the whole world goes by me. I basically go home in tears again. The exact same thing repeated itself that it did four years earlier at the Hershey track meet, not knowing, trying to play hero, that whole situation. It was devastating. So coach finally talked to me and he went on a little too hard and da, 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 but didn't really give me a whole lot. I started to feel it out that season, and then this is when it clicked for me. Fast forward to freshman year, I decided to go out for cross country. My coach runs me JV the first race. It's the same coach from middle school, actually, same guy. And He looks at me and he says, you are not allowed to lead until the first mile. I don't care how slow you think it is. You (laughs) cannot be in the lead until you get through mile one. And I was a rule follower. I followed that rule. And I won that race by two and a half minutes and I was in tied for the lead through mile one and nothing ever sank in more about like learning your body, pacing yourself, holding yourself back yields the biggest reward at that moment. I made up so much time. I almost won the varsity race. I was 23 seconds off of winning the varsity race. And I, but yet I was 40 seconds behind the leader of the varsity race at the mile. It showed me that like patience is key to a default in which then I became, oh, I'll just sit and kick all the time because mm-hmm. but point being is like I began as that self unaware of my effort runner which most of us start there and then eventually morphed and learned those lessons like biding your time and understanding what your body's truly capable of is key. So that's where I like walked through understanding my effort first, which is mm-hmm. somewhat like yours.
1: Yeah. It is. And that, and it's tough because Everyone assumes that when you're fit, you go out hard. When you're out of shape, you go out relaxed. And the, that's not the case. Your body can only work up to your capacity, no matter how fast or fit you are. And its you always have to start under what you're capable of holding. If you, if you start faster than that, then the bill comes due. And it's about getting fitter at those efforts rather than mm-hmm. changing your efforts once you get fit. But learning that early is yeah, at some point everyone has to blow up and that's no. okay, but then it's learning from that.
0: Yeah, and it, I don't Becoming know what self aware, yeah, what this phenomenon is, but and it's not even by choice for most people, but the start gun goes off and you just hit the panic button, eject immediately, emergency lights are going off, and suddenly you're just out like a cannon for no justifiable reason. Every single Spartan race, you see people who you know are gonna finish in the back half of the elite field sprint out mm-hmm. like they're the Olympic record holder in the 5K. They look like fools, right? And it's like this like weird panic that you probably don't even have understanding of. And once you learn to harness that off the start line, that's when that's when you start talking. And and there there's nothing well I was just saying, you can make up for people panic like, oh, I can't make up for that lost time if I hold back early. No, you can actually make up for that lost time and then some by simply yeah. just managing your effort.
1: There's nothing more depressing in a race than running out ahead of someone and saying, all right, now I'm in this position, we're good, the racing has settled in, people have made their their choices and now they're in, and then someone just calmly moves right past you and you're realizing, I'm at my capacity, I can't make a move, mm-hmm. and this person feels better than me. That feeling was just terrible for you and they feel feed off of that and there's a narrative in trail racing and OCR and in OCR I am partly responsible for perpetuating that narrative which is if you lose contact you're done and it's the one sport that's allowable to get out too hard I've said that before now bottlenecks are a real thing however I've done some introspection and I've been looking back and throughout My time in OCR, there are countless examples of people who do just that. They start out out of touch, and then they move right back up. And what I've finally just given in to believing is that if you are actually running faster than the people around you, you're still going to catch up. Mm -hmm. It's just that we get out of sight, out of contact, and we're working hard, and we're not seeing anyone come back to us the way you would see it on the road. Like on the road, you can see 600 meters ahead. And so if someone's 400 meters ahead, you see them be, turn into 375, 350, 325, 300, 250, 200, and you're just smelling blood in the water. Or on the trails, they might be 400 meters ahead and they're out of sight. And now you take it down to 375, 350, 325, 300, 275, 250, and you don't know that. Mm-hmm. And you're just running there like, I've been working so hard for two miles to bring this lead down, and it's not changing anything. Well. The only difference between the two is you're not feeling that energy transference from them to you. That only happens visually. And so you have to just be confident at doing that. But the good athletes have all done it. Hobie's done it. VJ and Kent one year both fell off of of an obstacle in Seattle and ran everyone down. We've seen mm-hmm. Lindsay do it. John Albin's done it. The good people do it. And it shows that it's possible When people say, I got disconnected and I never caught up, what they're really saying is, I couldn't keep up, and then I continued not being able to keep up. (laughs) It's that they were faster than you. But if you actually have energy, you do make up ground. And I was responsible for perpetuating that to some extent. I've said it many, many times, but at the end of the day, all races follow the same rules, which is that the 800 meter is the farthest distance up, the longest race, that has been scientifically proven to be better positive splitting it than negative. Mm-hmm. There's like a 4% swing you can have where like your, your first 400 can be up to like 4% faster than your second four, something like that. I could be off on the numbers, but the 100, the 200, the 400, all of them you get out faster, and that's scientifically proven to be best. The 800 is the longest distance that abides by that. Everything else after that is even either even splitting or cutting down faster as the race goes on, and there are no
0: exceptions to it. no mm-hmm. exceptions. Think back to I don't know how many races do you think Lindsay Webster has won? Oh, in I don't our know. sport. fifty Probably, 60. probably. How many of those races, let's just say a, a quarter of the way through it, regardless of to the distance. how many of those races has she been leading at the quarter? Do you think out of those 50? Five?
1: Maybe, maybe. Oh, I was going to say, maybe at best, half.
0: Not even. And if it's a big race, I can't think of but one or two off the top of my head. But at
1: a tenth of the way through, I would say Zero. 5% of those races. Yeah.
0: yeah. You trust your fitness, know it's there. What are you proving? Nobody remembers what the heck happens in the beginning. You even look at this past weekend on the, the men's side. If you look at where people were at the mile mark uh, versus where they were in the beginning, like Nick, Nick Mask, he was, how do you say his last name? I think it's, um Ma- I think that was Masek. Masek. Um, Masek or Matt I don't know. He was in like the third row of the start corral. Chris Brown, Tyler Veerman back in the second row. Things went off. They let everybody do their stupid thing and then slowly just worked their way up. Their ego could handle not being there for the first half mile wasn't a big deal. Then the real race started, they were ready to play, right? Mm-hmm. Panic button isn't worth it. But point being, I think both of our lessons, our first early lessons learned was about like being self-aware with how to put forth effort in a race. Like, I think that might be one of the first lessons people learn. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: The second lesson I learned was the, the beginnings of learning that training really well for one event allows you to run well in other events. So I ran a, a very bad two-mile as a junior. I'd run a a decent two-mile as a freshman, a decent as a sophomore, and very bad as a junior. In fact, I got worse as a junior. And then my senior year, I worked in the off-season for the first time. And I, was, I grew, I was stronger, and I became a good miler. We've gone over that. In my breakout race in high school was my indoor conference championship as a senior, where I thought about it all year, all off-season. During basketball, I trained still for running a bit. I lifted every night. I went to bed thinking about that mile, and I came out, and I won the indoor mile, which coming into it, based off the year before, I was probably the 12th best person there. I was the second last qualifier into the fast heat of our conference, and I think we ran 13 on the track. So I was the 11th guy, and I won it, and I won it pretty convincingly. It got out. One guy went out hot. Probably put an 80 meter gap on the field, and the rest of us ran in single file and slowly chased him down. And then I I worked my way up from six to fifth to fourth to third. And then as soon as I caught third, he was the defending conference champ. And as soon as I passed him, I was like, oh, this actually is going to happen. I knew right then no one's going to outkick me on a 160 meter track coming <clears> off of basketball work. It's not going to happen. It's too tight a turns and I won it. And then I ran the two mile later that day. And I got side cramps and I fell apart. I was nauseous because I didn't have the staying power yet. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to the end of the year, the week before our conference outdoor meet where I'm trying to defend the mile title. I'd run under 430 now like five times that year. I have the fastest seed time and things have changed a bit. We ran a two mile the week before in little old East Troy, Wisconsin, just so the mile would feel different. So it would feel shorter just to shake things up. And it was cold. It was like 28 degrees. There were snow flurries. And Mm -hmm. the coach said, just run the first mile easy and then get to work. And I hadn't run a two mile now in a year and a quarter. And I went out and I couldn't feel the pace at all. And he said, I'm not going to tell you splits. Just run casually. And it's really windy. Now it was windy enough. I was wearing a headband and gloves (laughs) <laughs> at a track meet in Wisconsin mm-hmm. because again, twenty-eight degrees, windy, and snow flurries. And we go through the mile, and I was just trying to run like a eighty-five percent effort. That feeling where if I go any faster, my stomach's gonna start churning a little bit, and any slower I'm probably not racing or even working hard. And I'd had no clue what that would feel like. And my previous two mile PR from the year before was ten twenty four. And went through the mile and and he yells 505 get to work. <laughs> 505. Oh boy. I would have been I would have believed 545. I had no feel for it and then I just cut down 1 second per lap and ran 5 flat the second mile and ran 1005. And I got done and I thought that was easy. And I had just cut 20 seconds off my PR by just training for the mile. I hadn't done any 2-mile work but I'd been specific in training and so we quick made a decision that entered me into the two mile at conference as well and i went out i won the mile in a really difficult race i pr'd i ran 426 had to kick all the way in i was so destroyed from it i couldn't warm up for the two mile i couldn't do strides my legs were too tired and it got out slow and then it cranked up and i ended up catching the leader with 300 to go and winning and i won the mile two mile at conference which was a big deal in our conference and i ran 952 that day and we went out in like 503 wow so I went 503, like 449 or something like that. And that was not even in the realm of possible two weeks prior. But that one two-mile changed my mentality of, A, what I was capable of doing to my confidence levels. But it showed me that you don't have to train like a two-miler to run a good two-mile. You can train like a miler and pop a decent two-mile or a mm-hmm. decent 800. You can't train like a 400-meter runner and run a good two-mile. But it was the first time realizing that sometimes when you get into a rut, and I was starting to get in the rut with the mile. I'd run it like six times outdoor, four times indoor. That's a lot of mile races to run in a row. Sometimes you do really, really well your first one or two races at a different distance. And that's been something that has been kind of powerful for me as a runner since realizing when I'm in a rut, change distances. And also,
0: you can prepare for something without preparing for that exact thing. If it's something similar. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. I've noticed that a number of times throughout my career. Um, I want to pose a question following that up then to you now that you've had time to develop your philosophy on this. Mm-hmm. If you're, let's just say your typical race is a 5k. Mm-hmm. What do you think is more beneficial racing longer than you think you're truly trained for, which was the case in yours, mile to two mile, or racing shorter than you've been training for? Which one's going to provoke better overall results?
1: I don't know. I really don't. Because I've had positive positive and negative experiences, both myself and other athletes, both ways. And I'm actually not a huge fan of doing what I did that day. Because so many times it changes the way you think about racing for the negative just as often as it'll change it for the positive. I'm actually a bigger fan of not racing as much and then race like two or three right before your important one. Mm -hmm. But that going up or going down, I have less concrete thoughts on that than I do about training up or training down. Which is if I want to run a good 5K, I need to put in a good 10K block of training and then sharpen down my training. That's something that's become very apparent to me. Okay. Training for the one deviation distance is a powerful tool for a strength runner like a half marathoner trying to run a good ten k. I train them for the three k, five k, and then and then race them in that.
0: Yeah, it's like one of those things. Like I think the best thing, let's say, an ultra marathoner can do, or even a marathoner, Mm -hmm. is go hop in a hard ten k or something within or shorter within a month of the race sometime in that four week out time frame, And then it just makes the race prospectively seem that much easier. Yeah. And then the other thing is if you're going out and racing marathon distance and somebody throws you into a 5k, like it's only, only in quotes, three miles. Like I can go suffer for three miles. I've been training for 30 and uh, those are very powerful things. And a lot of times I see jumps in my fitness because of it. Like, it'll shake the system just enough where you, you find breakthroughs because of those efforts. So um, I that's, like that. That's okay. the big takeaway, I, I
1: think. I'm actually – one of the things I think are one of the biggest fallacies in the distance running world is that you should run a half marathon as you tune up for a marathon.
0: I think it's too long.
1: It is, and it's too close in pace to what you're going to be doing. Because the difference between a half marathon and a marathon pace isn't that crazy for a lot of runners. But the distance is so different that you're running half the distance at a pace that is not half as fast. But you equate that the effort should be. And I just have seen it work out less times than I've seen it work terribly for runners where they leave it mentally destroyed. Like I could barely, I struggled to keep my marathon pace for a half marathon How am I going to keep it for a marathon in three weeks or four weeks? And it's not that physiologically it's a bad choice. I think mentally it's a bad choice for most people to run a half marathon tune-up. Because it's like taper week. You expect it to be easier. Running marathon pace for 13 miles is not easy. Painful. It's still painful, but if you don't go in with all your mental armor on prepared for what it's going to be, then it feels way worse. So I, like you said, running a really different race, a 5K, a 10K, maybe even a 10 mile, that's about as high as I'd suggest going, a road mile, anything, not only does it feel so different that you don't put any stock in it, but sometimes it is that little last piece to like kind of light the kindling a little bit and it incites some fitness change.
0: Yep. I've always thought that the half marathon is too close to the marathon. Maybe like if you want to feel it out, maybe six weeks out or more, maybe, but when you get closer, yeah, you want to feel that sharp sting of something faster, and it just seems to move the needle further. I am. Um, and the example, sorry to cut you off, is mm-hmm. that mile. If I'm running
1: 426 for a mile, let's just, let's just even say, yeah, 426. So what is that? 66 Six. and a half Six. seconds per yeah. lap, 75 seconds per lap to run five flat, to run a two flat 10 mile. I mean two flat I mean a ten flat two mile that day. Those ten seconds per lap difference, the nine, feels like an eternity. You almost aren't even using the same stride. And it feels so much easier that it's actually easy. Yeah. When in reality, running seventy five seconds a lap for me should have been at least somewhat taxing. But the perceived exertion is so different. That suddenly, okay, I can warm up at that and then crank down a 4.49 after that. That that shouldn't be easy, but it felt comparatively easy. So I do like going much shorter and faster.
0: Yeah. I'm going to move uh, to my next sort of lesson learned. Mm. And it's funny because all these are things we've talked about on the podcast, like these general sentiments towards training. But um, base matters. That would be mm. my second big lesson. Now, I learned that lesson not by choice, in a sense, but I think I shared this before on the podcast. I know I've told you. I'll see if you remember. Do you remember how my cross-country state meet times played out for me? No. I went to state all four years in cross-country, my freshman year as a team, and then my sophomore, junior, and senior year as an individual. I thought you ran the same time. I ran 16.48. 16.48. Three years in a row on the exact same cross-country course at the state meet, sophomore, junior, and senior year, down to the second. You could not do that if you tried, folks. I don't think. Now, I think my freshman year I ran 1713, and this was a decent cross course. had some rolling hills. It was at I think did you guys still go to Wisconsin Rapids for your state Rapids, cross country? Yeah. Yep.
1: I mean not me. I never I never made it to state.
0: Okay. I only went four times, so not that many more. <laughs> then I ran 1648 as a sophomore. Both my freshman and sophomore years of high school. Um I ran in the summer, believe it or not. I ran before my freshman year to get I went did like the captain's practices in the morning. I wanted to secretly get in shape for soccer but cross country was still entertained by me and stayed healthy. And then before my sophomore year, same thing I ran on my own. I was fully into running. I ran like four, three, four days a week, but that's a lot more than most kids. And I showed up pretty ready to run my junior year. I threw some sort of vertebrae out in my lower back and I was, I couldn't run. And I was stuck in the pool for three weeks. Um, And my summer training was shit. And then my senior year, I got a stress fracture in my tibia in June, early July. had to take seven weeks off of running and then slowly ramp back up. Now, I PR'd my junior year. As an overall time, I did get faster at some point my junior year than my sophomore year. And my senior year, at some point, I did PR marginally and got faster than I was my junior year. So if you look at my time progression, it was slightly better... I think sophomore year I ran 1648, junior year I ran 1631, and senior year I ran 1627. It's my season best. Not that great, but overall a slight progression. However, what happened here is both seasons where I came in injured, I basically started jumping right into quality workouts with the team as soon as I was ready. I didn't run any easy miles. I didn't lay a foundation. I came back from my injury. Mile repeats today? Kirk, you're in. Go hit those mile repeats. I had no base to my pyramid, and I'll tell you what, I sharpened fast. Four, six weeks in, mid-season, I'm right back to where I used to be, right back there, feeling like I've done it. Sure, I got my ass handed to me the first couple of races, but I'm back, baby. And you want to know what happened? As soon as it came and I was back, it left just as fast. And all of those years, my sectional and my state races were my worst races of the year other than the first few when I literally was not in shape. My peak was so short and so quick that when it came to the end of the season, which was only a couple of months later, I had no base to stand on. And I was already maxed out with nowhere to go. And all of those races, I came in and underperformed by everybody else's standard and my own. And it wasn't because it wasn't because I didn't have the potential and I didn't develop, it was because I had nowhere to go. I had absolutely nowhere to go. And so I had anticlimactic cross-country seasons, my junior and senior year, because I had no base. I raced myself out, burnt myself out before I even had a chance, and showed up and laid eggs, in a sense, compared to what I thought I was capable of. Now, in hindsight, you know, I couldn't make sense of it at the time. But I would bet my firstborn on the fact that it is 100% because of the fact that I laid no base, jumped right into the flashy quality work, hit that quick peak, yep. had nowhere to go. 100%. And now I realize that that's because I had I had zero foundation. I learned that lesson hard and only made sense of that one a little bit later. You ever learn that one? And do you agree with me, I guess, first of all?
1: A, I agree with you, yeah. And B... I learned that every track season for most of my life until my okay. senior year of high school and my senior year of college. Those were the only two years I had good fall and winter uninterrupted, and it's the only two years I PR'd the whole season. Otherwise, I'd PR, 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 and then at best maintain, and by the time championship season rolled around, I was on fumes and I was tailing off. Yeah. S- base sustain power, and it, it gives you firm ground to stand on. Well, it's like when you don't have firm ground to stand on, you jump off the ground. You can still sometimes jump okay, and then you like break through when you land. You can only stay
0: on it for so long <clears> and it crumbles. Well, it's the whole bank account analogy. It's like you work, you just, I don't feel like working that much this summer. You know, I'm home from college. I'm just going to work a little bit. And then by the end of the first semester, you keep taking bank deposits out or bank <laughs> withdrawals, and you have no money left. And you're like, I should have worked more this summer. I should have put more time on the job. And now I'm, I'm, I hit a dead end with my finances. It's the exact same thing. I was just withdrawing money and I barely had any in there to start with. And pretty soon it ran dry and nothing left. And it works literally just like that. I don't care physiology. You can break it down as much as you want, but that's as simple as it comes. And it was, it was very true for me in that case. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And then the speed at the end of the season doesn't take, there's nothing for it to latch onto and sharpen because you're already were fake sharp. Yeah, it's, it, it's kind of like accruing interest. You can't accrue interest if there's no money in there to accrue. Like it, the concept just doesn't apply. Sh- you can't sharpen something if there was no base built. Yep, it's just it's not
0: possible. Yep, that was that's uh, tough. that was my next big lesson learned. Which I think oh, yeah. we've all been there before. Try to patch job to get ready for a race, and maybe you pull it off. Maybe you do pull it off, and you get ready for that race. I mean, I had to run fast enough to make it through sectionals that year. And you know what? I ran great at sectionals. 20, 30 seconds behind Chris Selinski, I think at that race was a win for me. Taking third place, yeah. right? And you know what that effort did to me? first
1: non-African to break 27 minutes in a 10K? I think that 10 seconds per mile behind him, that works. Granted,
0: he was a sophomore in high school and I was a senior, but... Talent doesn't hide. He was a stud as a <laughs> sophomore. Point being, I took out every last penny i had in that effort and there was nothing left a week later for state yeah whereas if i had plenty of money in there no big deal a couple of recovery days one more sharpening session i would have plenty of money to withdraw a week later
1: this is an interesting one that that almost all pro runners learn there's always that that debate of show me examples of people who raced well off of low mileage and there's always examples but where that argument breaks down is at championship races where you have to run rounds, where you got to do prelims, semis finals all in the course of two days or three days. The low mileage athletes can all run fast, but many of them can't repeat it over and over. They don't have that stain power to recover and do it again. And so they might spend five years building up to a hundred mile weeks and not really get any faster but suddenly, they break through on a global st- global stage with a medal. And all these people will say, well, they, just, they were a, a 330, 1500-meter runner off 40, 50-mile weeks. And now they're a, a 330, 1500-meter runner off 90-mile weeks. It's like that's true. They didn't get faster, but they got repeatable. Yeah. Now they could race more often and recover, and they <clears throat> could race prelims semis and then go out and run a 330 in the final after having run 335 and 333 the day before and the night before and that's where that that repeatability piece comes in with volume if you just need to do one off yeah you probably don't need it but the more work you put in the more or the less chance you have of having a fluke
0: and that can also go for back to back to back race weekends It doesn't have to be be prelims and finals, back-to-back days. It can be like, can I actually, if I pulled off the right base in off-season training, can I pull off four race weekends in a row and actually be happy with my effort for all four? You know what? If you put enough money in that bank, maybe you can. Because a big,
1: untalked-about piece of volume is you practice recovering a lot more. Mm -hmm. You're always tired. Your body gets good at recovering. And if you get done with a 10-mile workout, and the next day you have a 16-mile long run, and the day after that you got another 10-mile run, you get used to regenerating quickly and then getting out and doing it again. And so the first race takes less out of you. Even if you're not significantly faster, you're just more recovered to do it again after.
0: Yep, exactly. Recovery yeah. reps is a real thing. Yeah, it is. Do you still showing up for work even when you're tired and don't want to? alarm clock yeah. still goes off Bracken. what's your next lesson you got one that jumps out
1: yeah freshman year of college was one giant learning experience but it encapsulates a few of the really important things i learned about myself and that other people hit generally along the way i learned it all in one season so i jumped right from 20 to 22 miles a week in high school to 70 65 70 down at campbell and I built up over the summer, but not well enough. I never got above 50, 55 that summer, and suddenly I'm running 70. So I was increasing volume all at once. Living away from home, I don't think I was super good about my diet. I started dropping weight. I graduated at like 5'11 and a half, 155. I came home at Christmas. That half is important. It's showing that I wasn't six foot yet. Okay. I came home at Christmas, a full six foot, one thirty nine.
0: Holy smokes!
1: So I had dropped twenty six pounds.
0: You were six foot, one thirty nine. I can't. No, even no, Im- that's
1: that's bad math.
0: Sixteen pounds. I can't imagine you being that thin. I have a shoulder
1: bone cuts down into my 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 arm bone, and then cuts back out to my elbow.
0: Like there wasn't anything there. A Couple rubber bands very, holding them together.
1: Yeah, I, I was very, I was very, very lean. And so I was running volume, I was losing weight, and I was working hard in workouts. I was running times I've never run in training before. And I started looking into that a little bit the wrong way. You start doing that logical but flawed math, thinking, all right, I think I'm a miler, 5,280 feet. Let's say I'm running like seven or eight feet per stride when I'm running, Let's call it, I'm going to take 700 strides, 700, I've lost 16 pounds. Let's call it 20. I'm going to move something like 14,000 pounds less over the course of a race than I would have at 155. That's logical. Every step, I'm moving 16 pounds less. That's going to add up to like fourteen thousand pounds of work I didn't have to do.
0: I'm just like cringing at this thought process. (laughs) Like it's uh, in hindsight, yeah, yeah, it's just painful because I get it. Mm
1: -hmm. But it's also logical. And at some point, almost every endurance athlete will think, "How much faster could I be if I were lighter?" And the answer is, well, it depends. How do you go about getting lighter? And what does lighter mean? I didn't have a lot of weight to lose. I could have been faster at a lighter weight in high school, except it didn't matter. I might have been more injured. The way I got down to 139 by being in a caloric deficit going into every single quality run I ever did and doing no, no strength training, no mobility work, nothing to counteract any negative effects I had on me, even if I did it the right way, 16 pounds was too much. But doing it the wrong way, I was guaranteed to get worse. And then on top of that, I was working too hard in workouts and we weren't doing any actual speed or strength. So I was doing all volume, all zone three and four work, nothing five, nothing two, no strength work. And what happens? I burnt out, I got sick a few times, I got injured and I ran slow. And, and I couldn't figure it out. I'd call home and say, I had such a great, I ripped off a 10 mile workout today. And I look back at the training log and that was Monday, Tuesday. We had an, a workout. That 10 mile run wasn't a workout. It was a training run, but I ripped a workout. Yeah. You know, everything was off. So I learned the don't work hard every day. I learned the don't drop weight quickly. And by trying to like cut things out, I learned, I can't get rid of strength training. I learned you don't make big volume jumps. I learned all those things in like six months, just one half of a freshman year of college. I did a ton of learning, but the weight thing was, was huge on paper. I looked like a stud runner. I still had my legs, but my upper body had just like whittled away. Mm -hmm. So I looked healthy-ish for a runner and you, on paper, I'd gone from 20 miles to 70 miles a week. And like I should have been, if I was 426 in high school and I didn't qualify for state, but I always thought I could run right about 419, 420 hmm. at state. I would tactically run every race that, that outdoor year. So I knew I had, and if you run, I'd ran 426 to 428, six times, like I was ready to drop something. So if I thought I was a 420 miler and now I drop 16 pounds in almost triple, I do triple my mileage, In my mind, I'm going to run low 14s, maybe 410 <clears throat> this freshman year. I ran 436 indoor my first race, and it hurt, and that was it. I was too injured to run after that, so I got all of those bad lessons out of the way in one year.
0: You built – because you didn't have a cross-country program there. You weren't recruited for cross-country. I was recruited only for cross-country. So we all jumped into 10K training. Okay, got it. And you opened with a 436, huh? Mm-hmm. And that was it. That that was the last time you ran. 218 hundred. That's the t- and that was it at Campbell huh then you never raced the rest of that season Yeah I did the 201 in a, a team inner squad meet and then the
1: 436 I was supposed to do that and then run again later and I couldn't on the cooldown my knees hurt so bad with IT issues I couldn't cool down and I scratched it and I never ran another
0: race so you what would you if you had to give me the three major bullet points in order of importance why like prioritize them for me what were the biggest three factors in order? For you getting worse, even though you were working harder in quotes.
1: I raised volume way too quickly. I ran middle to medium to hard effort almost every day at some point in the run. Mm -hmm. And I I dropped weight when I shouldn't have. All three were equally important. I was lucky I didn't get a stress fracture. I was lucky I didn't have a bad injury. The IT band stuff went away the moment I stopped running and stopped running in the shoes I was running in.
0: And do you know how common that combination is for people? Like it sounds like, oh, the perfect storm. Yeah, well, apparently a lot of people are dealing with the perfect storm because I know too many people who are restricting or trying to cut weight while trying to increase volume at the same time while not doing polarized training within that mileage. It is probably the most common trifecta of bullshit that people bring themselves through and end up frustrated with the results. It's so true. Everybody wants it all at once. And that recipe needs to be made one step at a time. You don't just mash it all yeah. together and stir it up and hope it works, right? It's true.
1: And it's really difficult. Like, let's say myself and someone, some other version of me, <clears> let's put them both at six foot 139. The one who graduated high school at six foot, let's say 145. And the one who graduated at six foot one fifty five are not going to have the same results racing at 139. My body is used to 155. It is used to those calories. It is healthy and healthful at that weight. Moving down 16 pounds is a drastic swing on a body in a few months. Mm-hmm. Moving down 6 pounds might have given me a little bit of short-term benefit. But the person who grows up at a body weight and never exceeds it, let's say I grew up at 139 that's probably a healthful weight because nothing changed to get there. And that's one of the big differences between our culture and let's say the East Africans. There's just, if you go and look at a standard town village or city there versus the U S the body type is much leaner over there. Mm -hmm. And so even if they race at 120 pounds, they may have grown up to be 120 or 130. Anyway, there wasn't some body change and the changes matter as much as the weight itself matters.
0: I agree I with you. I think that's an
1: overlooked part too. We look at what the body type is needed or proven to work at a world stage, but we don't take into account how they got there. Yep. They're either doping, unhealthy, or they're an outlier. And an outlier can mean they grew up that way. If you yeah. grew up really skinny and lean, that's just what your body grows to know. But getting down to skinny and lean, some for some people, that ship just sails, and you should not ever get down to that skinny and that lean because your body can't function well there.
0: Yeah, How far from your body's, like, set point are yes. you really trying to train and race at? And that's going to determine how successful that actually will probably be long-term for you. Um, uh, side question then. Were you restricting your food purposely no. then? You weren't. I was
1: – I was very lucky that year down there because I had no guidance. I had poor coaching. We had, I really, we were left to our own device. We had 10 freshmen on an 11 person team. Like we had no uh, senior leadership. We had no upperclassmen guiding us. We were just left to our own devices. I'm lucky I didn't develop a negative relationship with food. I lost weight because I was training triple. I went from 20 to 22 miles to 60 to 70. I tripled my volume I probably tripled how hard I worked on a weekly basis rather than twice a week. I was probably working hard five to six days a week. And it was like the college routine. You could get to the meal halls when you could fit it in. And I'd get there really, really hungry, eat a lot, and then wouldn't get back for five or six hours. But we were training twice a day, three or four times a week. I was just, Mm -hmm. I was in a deficit by, it was like a nature deficit. The schedule of my life and the way I ate, I didn't stay on top of things. I didn't set alarms to make sure. If I only had 15 minutes between class, instead of grabbing a wrap or something, I just moved to my next class. So there was no intent there. And again, I I think I was really lucky to learn all those things and have the smallest amount of ramifications you can probably have.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of people experience that naturally. You have a metabolism of an 18, 19-year-old. You're increasing volume. Yeah. I went from 160 to 152 my freshman year of college without, I think I ate more, to be honest, having access mm-hmm. to the the food hall. But, yeah, okay, I get it. Anything else? I
1: ate very healthy in my house growing up, and mm-hmm. I ate whatever I wanted there. Yeah. So I had a lot of calories that would make me feel sated, but I probably wasn't getting density. Yeah, yeah. But, no, that was my, that was my, my freshman year was crazy learning. But everyone that we talk to here will deal with one of those things. Trying yep. to trade too hard too often, trying to raise volume too quick, or trying to lose weight to
0: get faster. Um, Anything else you want to add to that before I move to my next one? No, I'll go to yours. Uh, my next one happens same time frame, my freshman year of college. And then we're going to have to speed this process up a little bit as we... A little bit. Migrate. But, um, uh, and this is what I'm still learning, but I learned at the heart or the, the, the biggest learning curve my freshman year of college, and that is inserting yourself into a race meaning there's running to run your best times and then there's racing the race itself being a racer versus a pr chaser i didn't really know necessarily the difference you just went out and you ran hard and that was that but in college things become tactical if you guys watch like olympic trials or high-end world races You can have an Olympic mile, not that there's an Olympic mile, but say there was, one in like 410 when these guys can run 350. Like they didn't even come close to their capabilities because there's strategy involved. And for me, that meant running against guys that were better than me, and that meant overextending myself early at times to stay connected. It also meant holding back when I maybe wanted to go in order to you know, finish strong or get through a round at like the conference meet or something like that. And so I learned to basically race. That's when I learned how to race. I could just sit and kick in high school and win. No problem. I was the big fish in a small pond. Um, and so um, that was that was a big one for me. And that came through both at the conference meet and then at nationals my freshman year more than anything. I started getting a little disconnected early in some of the races because I was so fearful of dying late in a race because of Mm -hmm. trauma as a child in my races, we'll call it. (laughs) And in high school, I sat and kicked, sat and kicked. I win. sat and kicked. I win. I won every race until state, my senior year of high school, just sit and kick. I'm faster than you. I have a better fitness than you. If I want a guaranteed win, I'll just sit and I'll kick. It was a coward's way to race in a sense. It didn't set me up for college very well at all. Um, and you can't sit and kick in college when you're a freshman and there's people that are much better than you. So that brought me out of my comfort zone quite a bit. It was like surviving the move so you could still stay in the game, I would call it. And it's very reminiscent of OCR now that we're into obstacle course racing. It's countering moves or making a move at the right time. And so, um, you know, Ryan Kempson made a post before San Luis Obispo last week, and he didn't race San Luis Obispo, and he said – in his post. And I agree with it and I don't agree with it. And it said, looking at the list of names or something for San Luis Obispo, it seems like on paper, there's a lot of fast guys here. Or will it just be the same people who end up on top because they know how to race? It'll be interesting to see it shake out. And I was like, yeah, well that's kind of true. Like who's going to show up with fitness that they don't know how to use and who's going to show up maybe even with less fitness, but knows how to race. And then the other sense, I didn't agree with it because I think there's some people in that 10 to 20 range, not even saying myself included, who know how to race. And that's just as good as they can possibly do because they're not winning doesn't mean they don't know how to race. You understand what I'm saying? However, um, nonetheless, long story short, um, I went from running 431 in the mile as a senior in, in high school, Bracken, to the equivalent of roughly 412 or 413 my freshman year of college. Do you want to know how I did that? I inserted myself into the race. I learned how to race. I learned how to hurt early, counter early, trust my training, trust my fitness. I sat and kicked to like four 431s in high school. Taking off 17 seconds in a mile doesn't sound like a lot to you guys in a season. That is an astronomical amount of time to take off in one year in the mile. All is because I learned how to race. And you want to know what happened because I learned how to race that season? I was an All American. You want to know why? Because the first heat at Nationals went out slow and tactical and they kicked home and everybody ran four flat and 401 across the finish line in the 1500, which is slow for a national meet. And then all we knew as we were racers is we went out and we set the pace. We all ran 357 in trials. The whole group made it to finals. And then it was just I was in the finals when I was the last qualifier because I learned how to race. And then in that yeah. last race, I hung on for dear life to eighth place, which is the last all-American. And there happened to be something left in the last 50 meters for me to outkick my own teammate in the last five meters, taking the last all-American spot. And all that ha- came down to is knowing how to race and nothing to do. I had something to do with my fitness, but way more to do with understanding how to race. And I learned that, that a very valuable lesson that year. And that opened my eyes to, to how to approach racing. And I And I don't know if that all makes sense, but it it worked for me at the time.
1: Well, there's a lot of knocks on the U.S. collegiate system for developing athletes. But one thing that's never been debated is its ability to teach you how to survive different tactics in a race. And the better you get, the more you have to learn how to run different styles. When you're in the back of the pack, you just run at your best effort and (laughs) you hang on. Mm -hmm. But learning how to handle with different types of races is paramount to being a racer.
0: Yeah, it really is. And, and like, and I think in our sport of obstacle course racing, it leads so much more to that as far as racing, making decisions, surging, playing catch up when needed, countering, making your own moves. It's just like, it is like a high level track and field professional race with all the tactics, but like on steroids, because there's so many opportunities to race out there. Yeah. If that makes sense. So many points in time on the course where decisions can be made. Yeah.
1: So I have two last pieces from college, but they're short. And so I'm going to combine them into one Okay. One uninterrupted flow of random thoughts here. The first is that my last year of college, I learned two incredibly important things. The first is I learned the power of, of slower intervals and how it affects your speed. Every year you see it someone comes off cross country and runs a crazy fast mile every year. And that happened to me. We ran a 1200 meter time trial at the end of cross country. And I ran something like three Oh six or three Oh seven. And I was running. I had, I had night class a ton that semester cause I was behind on credits and I had to catch up to get out. And so I ran it with, basically the the non-varsity guys so i just ran alone every step didn't feel fast felt really comfortable doing it like comfortably uncomfortable no clue what i was running and crossed at 306 or 307 which i mean you even tack on a uh a 70 second lap at the end of that which i could have and that's a 416 417 mile yeah it's a great time and i finished that and i thought oh man i'm fast right now you give me like two or three weeks and I'll run 410 in a mile right now in fall. And I had never felt like that before. And then it happened again in spring. I spent all winter running thousands, two thousand meter intervals, four mile tempos. I mean, sorry, all winter doing that. And then in spring, I came out and I started PRing everything. Every race I started PRing. And it it showed me the power that you do not have to run your race pace to get faster at your race pace. But there's actually no magic to running race pace. There's magic to improving your fitness. I was doing 8k and 10k paced work all fall and all winter. And I PR'd my mile in my 800.
0: Mm-hmm. That
1: doesn't really make sense when you think of the power of race pace. But if you can get away from thinking I need to run fast to run fast, then you realize that there's power to this. And that, that has served me well since. And it's Every runner goes through this as well, which they get to a point where they realize, I'm just not fast enough. I need to do a speed block. But speed isn't necessarily the issue. And I, at some point, have this conversation, almost argument, with athletes when they say, I couldn't keep up with the guys in this 10K of the first mile. I'd like to work on my mile speed for a little bit. And I say, you know what we should work on is your threshold. That's always the answer. you (laughs) can't keep up the first mile. You can't keep up the next six. We should work on maybe your five-mile speed. But... The fastest way for you right now to improve your mile might be to run four hundred meter reps. But the fastest way for your mile speed to go away when we're done working on that is to run four hundred meter reps. Yep. You'll get good at the mile, and then you'll stop doing that training, and none of that's going to stick around. But if you improve your mile time through stain power workouts, let's say ten k work, five k work, that stays with you when you move to your next race. And that's I think it was important for me to find out in college because I was no longer tied to that feeling of, I've got to run sprints to get faster. Yep. It was, i got to improve my 10-mile time to improve my 5K. I got to improve my 5K to improve my mile. And that's something that I think provides you staying power in your race, but also in your life of training, because there's only so long you can run speed work for before you start to burn
0: out. You're going to end up like Kirk Dewin at State, his junior and senior year of high school. Mm-hmm. It's not so going to work get out for you. get faster through
1: 10K work. You can I, run a good mile off of it.
0: I don't think I've agreed. I mean, I've agreed with everything you've said today so far. I agree most with this one out of any of them. Yeah. Absolutely. And I got a couple athletes who claim to have felt slow in San Luis Obispo. Most had great races, by the way, fantastic performances. I had, like, I don't know, 12 podiums, something stupid, which is amazing. But there's a handful like, I need more speed work. I felt slow. And we're going to have some conversations about that coming up about is that really what's going on here let's talk um i agree man i totally agree
1: my with three races to go my senior year i figured out how to run fast and relaxed so i've been running since middle school and when i was 21 22 whatever age i am graduating as a fifth year senior i figured out how to run fast not hard like Fast exists in a lot of forms. And when you think of, think of the CrossFit games, when they run any of their running events, they do their trail 10K, and guys have their fists balled up, and they're running, and they look like they're like working a heavy bag with their hands while their face is set in this grimace or their cheeks puffed out. That's running hard. That's not running fast because that won't last. Yep. I figured out in college with three races to go in my career, how to go out fast and to sleep. And I PR'd three straight races and then I ran out of time.
0: Fast and relaxed. In the 800,
1: that's a lot of PRs in a row. A ton. It was easy for me to stay fast and relaxed in a mile. It was tough for me to do it in a cross country or an 800. And I think part of it in the 800 was that in a mile, even if it goes out really fast, that's like a 60, 61 second lap for me. That's about as fast as I went out in, in college. If I could run a 49 or a 50, that's 10 seconds different. In an 800, if it gets out fast, it's 52. And that's only two seconds off as fast as I can run. And it's hard to ride that line to run that fast, but be relaxed. But the day it clicked, I walked up to my coach after. I was like, I got it. He said, you do. I saw it. You got it. And that was it. I just knew how to do it from then on. And that has helped me post-collegiately as much as anything other than I don't have to do speed work to get faster I can do threshold work those have been the two most important things because running five minute pace or six minute pace or seven tense versus relaxed just is a world apart in terms of what happens the next mile and the next mile and the sooner people can realize that the better they will unlock people talk about on YouTube all the time how to unlock free speed I don't think there's any way to unlock free speed other than to learn to run relaxed. It's the only thing that overnight will make you faster. Changing your stride doesn't work overnight. Doing a magic workout doesn't work overnight. Relaxing your body and still maintaining your speed is the only thing that overnight will make you a faster run.
0: Relaxed is smooth and smooth is fast. Yeah. And it 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 was like
1: light switch. It was that first lap of an Outdoor 400. The first time running down the home stretch thinking, I'm so relaxed. <laughs> I'm not hurt. This is great. Just, I knew it in that moment and it, it'll never leave.
0: It's true. It's like you want to stay asleep as long as possible. Yeah. Because as soon as you wake up, it's going to hurt. You just stay nice and cozy.
1: And we think of throwing ourselves into a race in terms of like an aggressive move. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. You're trying to maximize your gas mileage. You're staying on the cruise control. You're popping it out on the downhills and coasting. You are s- asleep until it's go time.
0: Yeah. Um, I have a number of lessons I could nitpick along the way, but for time's sake, I'm going to fast forward to my Spartan career. I'm going to just gloss over a decade or more. Okay. And I have two that I want to get to that at all today. Lessons okay. lessons learned along the way. Um. And so I might be messing up your timeline here, but... Um, I don't could, care about timeline. I care about lessons. Right. Uh, the the next, the hard lesson that I learned is that uh, flat running is not mountain running, period. <laughs> okay, straight up. That is the lesson. I had come into OCR in 2016, running maintenance miles for a few years, running some road 5K, some local trail races, which were not terribly hilly. Um, In fact, my running metrics then, maybe not quite as good as today, but not far off. I'd beat myself by an hour in Tahoe now. Yet I could (laughs) run almost the same time for a 5K, let's call it. And I was doing mostly flat work, and I'm like, my engine, like, the mountains, yeah, they're scary, but, like, I'm fit as heck. I'm going to go run well. And I decided that two weeks before Tahoe in 2016, my first time ever running a mountain, I'd go hit the ski hill for the first time (laughs) two weeks before Tahoe. You assigned a workout, uh, Bigfoot, or something. We were doing rope, sled pulls, and five minute tempos and it was kd maybe whatever it was and i smashed her in like 21 miles and gained whatever but a lot of it was done on flats and my body you know i could fake it a little but anyways i my engine was great my metrics were great i could click off rhythm running on flat ground pretty dang good at the time and i went to tahoe and took 58th 63rd if you count the women that beat me and I believe I lost to Cody Moat by 40. Who won that year? Hobie Call. I believe I lost to Hobie Call by 47 minutes or something like that. Um and I was this is no fault to you and your coaching at all. This is me just not knowing any better, not having an incline trainer, not choosing to go to the ski hill for workouts. I was more humbled that day than I think I had ever been in my entire life. Showing up with my chest puffed out, like, these guys don't know what's coming to them. They don't know what's coming Mm -hmm. for them. I remember Robert Killian was the returning world champ, and he was stretching by this big tree off from the start line. And we had a group of leaderboard guys there, and you were around, and Killian was right over there. And I was like, that guy doesn't know what he's got coming to him today, (laughs) thinking like, I was like 30 seconds off of him or 45 in a sprint I got DQ'd from in Chicago for my first Spartan race, thinking like I'm in better shape now. I've been training for obstacles. This guy don't know what he's got coming to him. Joke was on me, Bracken. This guy, I'm pointing at me, did not know what he had coming to him. And I got rocked. And not only I got rocked, I thought one workout two weeks before was going to prepare me for climbing 2,500 feet straight. I've learned that Your climbing game doesn't happen overnight. Hell, it doesn't happen in three or six months. Climbing is one of those things that you need to invest years in to get better. And I'm not trying to scare you away and tell you not to even try. It's worth trying. I'm five years removed and the best climber I've ever been. But like, it is not like sprinkling in some 400s and suddenly getting some fast twitch back or doing a few threshold runs and noticing that suddenly I'm just like, my state power is better. This is a whole nother beast and you do not learn to climb by a few workouts a week for a couple weeks or months this is a years and years endeavor without question that was my next hard lesson learned it's brutal but it's true mhm what's your experience Uphil been with that
1: translates to down down or and to flat flat doesn't translate uphill as well and 100%. there's a grade at which point it doesn't <clears throat> translate and you have to work that My, my version of that was terrain.
0: Sure.
1: Figuring out that I need to stop doing my, once I get within, I don't know, four to six weeks minimum of a big race, I can't be on the track or the treadmill. I have to be on race specific terrain at least 50% of my, my fitness mover days, because it just, the stride you use there doesn't translate. And the worse the terrain gets, the more it's important to get on it and the race I realized that was uh at I mean I I knew that for a while but I saw the power of specific terrain blocks at OCR worlds and I've talked about this but it wasn't even my race it was James Appleton's James Appleton was always a very good OCR athlete and mountain runner and he wasn't known as a blazing flat ground guy he's good in the mountains he's good at long stuff he mm-hmm. but he never scared anyone he'd be in the top 10 mix at Spartan Worlds and Killington but ocr world's the first year he smashed everyone in the team relay on the flat running leg of it it was a two mile run and he beat everyone all the fast guys in the sport he worked them because his riverbed running was better than anyone else's because he had moved to a section of the uk i think it was the uk and joined up with some people and the trails they ran were all like that and were so gnarly he said he couldn't even keep up on the easy days week one but by week six he was able to hang with those guys and then he came over here against guys who are faster than those guys but didn't have the terrain experience and smoked them if you ran a flat 5k he would have taken probably 10th and you ran a flat two mile with rocks on it and he probably put eight or ten seconds on the second place and he was running against Cody Mote, Chad Trammell, um, Angel Quintero, a bunch of studs who can run fast and he smoked them and that's when I realized the power of a specific block of terrain. Like you, your fitness doesn't translate, but once it does, it all translates. You just have to put enough time in on that, and now you've got it. And it was such mm-hmm. an eye-opener for me, talking to him afterwards. I'm like, how did you do that? How would you get so fast? He's like, I didn't change my speed. I
0: translated my speed to this terrain. And it took him six weeks. Did you not experience the same thing with climbing, being a flatlander beforehand?
1: I put in so
0: much climbing before my first mountain race that I was actually prepared. Oh.
1: I was obsessed over the Killington Mountain. I was obsessed over the race videos of it. I mapped everything out. I did, that was that year I did a 26 week build into Killington. I did so many tens of thousands of feet of vert on our local ski hills that I was bulletproof by the time I got there. Okay. My descending wasn't up to par. I didn't realize what true descending was until I got next to descenders. But my climbing had already translated. But I started, I mean, <clears> 26 <throat> weeks. That's six months of climbing work. Yeah. That was a lot of climbing work. And I'd already been doing, I was always a hill rep believer, and I was doing them on like 10% grade hills. And mm-hmm. then I translated that to ski hills. So I had had a long prep for my first true mountain race okay that was that was very fortunate that there was only one mountain race a year in the sport at the time and it was in fall and i learned about it in january so i had time
0: okay but i mean i feel like even i mean this could go with for flat running too but like i bet you're climbing still climbing and descending and i include descending in the climbing piece by the way i guess i i should say mountain races Mm -hmm. but um still has gotten better since then at points. Your pinnacle wasn't there as oh, far sure. as a good client. Right. It still took time. Yeah. And this is coming from the perspective of somebody who only ran roads and flat. Myself leading in. A lot of you listening might have been on the trails and mountains in your beginning phases of running. And the curve isn't going to be as big for you. But if you're anything like me, that was a that was a big lesson to be learned. It was. Yeah.
1: And, and then a lesson I learned was the first time I got, again, out to Killington and I blew up. Actually, it was uh, Glen Rose earlier than that. I blew up on a bucket carry and then again in Killington. And I just thought, this is the hardest thing. My body's not made for it. My back's so sore. It's so tight. My quads aren't strong enough. And I made it a mission to work on bucket carries. And I got good at them to the point where it was one of my best things in OCR was the bucket carry before when you had to front carry it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I was so good at it in my mind that it was just my skill now, and then after about a year, suddenly they were really difficult again, and that was my introduction. I got to a race and I did a bucket carry, and I was still good at it, but it took so much out of me that my next mile was was so bad, and it destroyed me. And it that was the the the, the seed was planted there for perishable skills. Mm-hmm. And just because I acquired the skill doesn't mean that it's going to stick around, and that was. A brutal awakening, but it it became almost an obsession with how much do I have to keep doses in to not lose those little pieces? And I think people are figuring that out now and they're about to because people overreact to races. Oh, I need so much speed, they're going to forget about their climbing. Or I need so much climbing for Utah and Big Bear, they're going to forget about their speed or they're going to forget about carries or transitions, whatever it is. You can't let things go. You have to add pieces on. And that's an invaluable piece to learn before it's too late.
0: Well, when you were bulletproof and and worked hard to develop that skill, then what does it take to maintain it after it's been developed? What do you think?
1: For a skill like that, I think it has to be involved in an anaerobic capacity once every two to three weeks. And in a skill-based capacity, whether it's fitness, a weight room, or just a, a finisher, same amount of time once every two to three weeks if you can hit one each per month you'll maintain some semblance of it but you'll still have to brush up before a big race but if you do it every other week both of them i think you'll be fine
0: yeah i agree i think even two weeks if it's a purposeful effort plenty yeah. after you've established yeah but
1: the establishment has to be worked on until it's established
0: exactly um you want to jump to another one that comes to mind for you because i've only got one left that i want to it's important for me to wedge in there before Yeah, I'm happy.
1: I learned this many, many times, and I'm still struggling with it. Because of my track background, I hate anything on me that's not necessary. Socks was a hard thing to race in for a long time. Me too. And then once I could run in socks, it was hard to run in socks that went up over the top of my shoes. And then to bring them up over my ankle bones was hard too. It just felt slow and cumbersome, and they're going to soak up water. And it was difficult me for me to, to shoe up, to add more cushion or stack height and weight to my shoe because it's so hard. It's so it's more weight to carry. That led to long races, which led to carrying gear. Packs and carrying water is such an issue for me. As people know, I struggle with wearing a pack. I feel so terrible. I feel so slow. And I always err on the side of carrying less it invariably blows up in my face. Some of my biggest blow-ups ever have come in races that I've rolled the dice and said, I'm not going to carry that much. I'll figure it out. And you feel great and fast early on, but when it goes, you would give any amount of weight in the world to have Mm. more fuel and more water. And also, part of feeling great early is that it probably allows you to work too hard. Like The blow-up happens in tandem. Not enough fuel and probably overreaching early in the race. If I had a little extra pack on me, I'd probably rein it in a little bit and not blow up. <coughs> it's one of those things you never regret it when you need it. Mm-hmm. But when you need it and you don't have it, it's just a killer. And so for, for Ireland, I'm not going to be able to count on aid stations. I don't. There's not a ton of information out on it right now. And I finally decided I'm just getting used to packs. So every run I'm doing so far has been in a pack. My recovery runs, my easy runs, my my minute hard up that on the hill the other day, I was laid in a fully laden pack for it. Perfect. Just I mean, it looks dumb. It probably even sounds dumb to some runners out there, but I just have to get to the point where I don't care what I'm wearing anymore. But airing on the side of less fuel and water has never once helped me. Never. And it's probably happened a dozen times. It happened to me against Ryan Atkins down in a, a battle frog one year in Miami. He started taking gels early in the race and swinging towards the water stations and I'd started surging when he did that
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I started to pull away from him and then around an hour, I started to come back to him and he beat me by like three minutes like it just it never works. that was a flat, fast course that was probably a eighty minute win for him eighty-three minutes for me-
0: mm-hmm.
1: How much would my pace have slowed if I took? a little waste pack and had some gels in there and stopped at water stations.
0: Not three minutes,
1: two seconds per mile for the first hour. And then I would have been a minute faster per mile. The last three miles. It's just, it never once has worked out for me. Mm-hmm. And if anyone can learn from that. If you think you might need water, take it. If you think you might need an extra gel or two, you will not notice it once the gun goes off.
0: No, you will not. It's very true. Um, do you have any other examples like where, where that bit you? Dubai.
1: Dubai, it bit me. When we went over for a, the Middle Eastern Championship, it was a beast. It was supposed to be 21K. It turned out to be 31K. Uh, they said 19 to 21K. It was a 31K race. We thought, it'll be about a two-hour race. I'm not going to carry anything. I'll bring one gel, and I'll try to hit water stations. That already was a reach. That was already a stretch. Yeah. Add in an extra seven miles of racing. And it's 93, 95 degrees in the desert. Ugh. And I, I gave away 27 minutes in the last 10K. I was walking because <laughs> I was so cramped. Anytime my feet came off the ground or touched water, everything ceased. I was battling the open wave females the last 3K, battling to try to stay with them up the sand. It was, I was just crushed by it. And w- anyone who brought a little bit of water with them, they didn't even run well, they just didn't die. <laughs> and it made right. them run well. So it happened there. It's happened in Killington. It's happened in Tahoe. It's happened... i trying to think where else. It cost me in Palmerton one year. I ran 70 minutes of a great 90-minute race. And then I went from second to fourth and missed out on a couple thousand and being on a podium at a National Series race. It, it always mm. gets me, and I never learn. Till now. You have been comfortable in your Salomon... Salomon? <laughs> in your Salomon um, in your Solomon hydration pack from the moment I've known you, was that ever an issue with you putting on a shirt to race or putting on a vest to race or putting on socks? Or did it just not matter to you?
0: Oh, I still hate it. You do. Yeah. I mean, I'm big chested and then having that pack hanging off my chest, but like I very early on practicing with it on long runs when I go to the ski hill and wearing it, like eventually I just was like, this is good for me. So I recognize the benefit because a few times early I wouldn't take water with me, and then die miserably and realize like this is this is an easy decision. It's a no brainer. I learned that lesson in training. Yeah, people uh, will ask. So
1: if you had to recommend two packs and two waste options right now, because
0: we'll get messages on this, what should people get? Well, I mean, you directed just one of each. You directed me to this one initially, but. If I could choose between the vest or the waist belt, if I believe the setup is good enough for me to choose between the two, I will choose the waist belt every time versus the actual, like, pack. Um, If I believe there's enough places to fill up water and that isn't an issue, I'll take the Nathan Peak belt all day, every day. Uh, It sits really well once you get it cinched on, right, and it it sits, sits well on your hips. For me, it does. Um but then i do have a solomon s lab series uh pack i don't know what it is but sure it feels Mm -hmm. goofy the first when it's real full of water and your first quarter mile half mile and then you completely forget it's there i've never blistered in it or chafed in it um and the longer the race the more you drink the less it weighs and that always turns out to feel nice too as you go on and i wore it in tahoe in 2019 and uh didn't even think about it because i'm used to it now but those would be the those would be the two what about you
1: can't go wrong with Solomon. I think Nathan has really upped their game. I like their, still the Nathan Vapor car, the original version, still my favorite waist belt ever, mm-hmm. as long as you figure out a more secure attachment option than the little Velcro tab in back.
0: Mm-hmm. It's
1: the only pack that you can cinch down and back around the bottle, and it's the least bounce I've ever experienced. I have the Nathan, I mean the naked belt right now. After the Nathan, I'm not impressed with it. Hmm. Everyone says it doesn't bounce. I find it bounces. It's not bad. It's just not better than the other waist belt. So I'm going to keep testing it, but I haven't been blown away so far. The Nathan's still the best. That Peak, the one you're talking about with the hard bottle, if I get it adjusted right, it's the it's so good. If it's you the get easiest it in-and-out right. bottle. Yep. You can one-hand it in-and-out all day. You don't have to think about it. But I've been having a hard time getting it adjusted to the place I want it. When I do flat running or trail running, I think it's my favorite. But with OCR or steep mountain work, I find that I want it adjusted differently for different types of running. If I'm power hiking, I want it a little looser if I'm descending. And I haven't been able to do multiple adjustments, so I would still go for the Nathan Vapor Carrar, the original, not the two. I don't like the two. I would still go for that one. And then up top, I've been wearing an Instinct um, Evolution pack. This week, and I really like it. I got mm-hmm. it uh, about a year ago for Christmas. It's one of those gifts I picked out for myself yeah I, <laughs> I, I really like it so far, so I'm going to keep testing that out, but yeah, you can't go wrong with Solomon. Solomon mm-hmm. makes such good packs,
0: yeah, and with that belt, you just cinch that baby on there until you can't breathe i will stay put yeah it's a fine That's balance the only, between getting you power with it uh no.
1: And that's the issue. When you go to power hike, when it's that snug, the you hips. have to loosen it because
0: uh-huh. it just like
1: it compresses on your gut then. But as soon as you loosen it, you get to the top and now you've got to cinch it. And it, I feel like I never find this, that spot again.
0: Okay. Yeah. I it's get like a heavy
1: carry. You've got your comfort spot. As soon as you adjust it once, it's never going to feel good again.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: could see that. So, but I'm okay. going to keep
0: playing. All keep right. Playing uh, my last lesson that I think is worth sharing was learned here this fall and winter. Yeah. Yeah, it sure was. And, you know, as, as endurance athletes, we like to dissect our training, like what we are specifically doing for training and what's the next, next flashy workout, or how can I squeeze ounces out of my tempo pace or anything like that? Um, with some of us then take it to the next level and look at recovery and, Uh, those sort of things, um, which means you might foam roll or go get massages or cryo. And then none of us really take that next step, and that is like looking at everything outside of training and like any aspect that would be commonly thought of as training. And I know I've talked about this somewhat recently, but, you know, this fall I changed everything but my training, in fact, I would argue I was training less hard, with less purpose, and with less direction than I had in years. Mm-hmm. But I picked out some things in my life that needed I needed to be better as like a human, as like for my overall health. Like forget about training, like what's best for your overall health. Does that mean eating more fruits and veggies? Cause all you eat is macaroni and cheese and pizza? Maybe. Does that mean prioritizing sleep on some nights when you still are a social person and want to go hang out with your friends but battle back and forth between the two? Maybe it's that. For me, it was it was alcohol. And, you know, I've walked through my training pre and post, you know, going through that whole experience in September, and I was training two to four hours less per week as a total. I was walking out the door with no real plan for the day most days and then just intuitively training. And what happened? I got faster. I was running less with less purpose, but I was taking care of my overall health more than anything. And so that made me faster. Even though if you just looked at my run log and what I was choosing to do, you'd be like, well, yeah, this guy's like, he's not even taking this seriously right now, but I got better. And it had nothing to do with my running and my training. It had everything to do with doing like, what do I need to do to make myself healthier? And like a, a better human. And I bet you everybody has something that -hmm. they could think of that would just like make them overall healthier. What is that for you? And you'd be shocked that maybe it's big enough to move the needle with your metrics significantly. So that lesson I did not expect. Like I got better at running and had nothing to do with my running, which doesn't even make sense, but oh, it does. And so that would be my most recent lesson learned.
1: As you were talking, I was thinking, I don't know if I know a single person who has optimized their life, perfectly Mm -hmm. optimized it. Even the people who dedicate their life to it are still subject to their own bias. It's really, really difficult, if not impossible, to live the perfect lifestyle. And so because of that, we all have things we can improve. And yeah, a lot of those improvements are going to come from a non-running part of your life.
0: Well, it's like we look at those the obvious stuff, which is the running and the training and maybe the recovery, and then you kind of be like, I can eat like junk because I I train hard and I'm not going to get fat. Yeah, but just because you're not getting fat doesn't mean like you're optimizing your body's performance, for example, which that might be more relatable for some people than alcohol. But um, I don't know. I just think I was ast- blown away if I'm being honest. Yeah. With the difference it made. So um hopefully you can think of a way that there might be just one thing you could work on towards your health. And I might go yeah, move the needle for you.
1: Well, I'm going to close with my last thing is learning not to read too much into one race, workout or block of training. Preach. With myself and with the athletes I coach, I don't give them a new document every new block we start. I string our training out on a Google Sheet at least for a year before switching to the next tab in that document. And sometimes I'll do multiple Mm -hmm. years in a row. And I know it's a hassle sometimes to scroll down to find it. But the reason I do it is so that we never get in the habit of looking back at what we just did. And judging by that alone so that we can look back if you just had a bad race I want your eyes to automatically see like 20 weeks in a row so you realize what I just did may have helped but I am not the end product of what I just did and even if I am I'm the end product of what I just did how it interacted with what I did before how it layered on or how it contrasted with it and we are so quick to have one result and just say I've got to make a change but what if you're a product of what you did six months ago incorrectly? The only way to know that is to stay, take a step back. You almost have to say, all right, every time I go to make a change to my training, I have to first have an intervention with my training from a different perspective. Like I would have to say to myself, and I'm going to talk here to myself, which I hate when people do, but I'm intentionally <laughs> doing it. I'd have to say, Bracken, you want to change your training. But first, let me take a look at what you did over the last year. And and then I take a look and say, all right, I can see why you think that 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 block right there didn't work really well, but you actually weren't even training for this race. You had this theme of training going, and this is what went wrong. So I would actually tell you to try to follow it for six more weeks until you get to this race and then reevaluate. Or I might say, yeah, you're actually right. You should change, but you had this good thread going. Let's keep that going and maybe just micro change this workout over here and see what that does. You have to take a big picture approach to everything. Because almost, outside of life choices, almost nothing in fitness is changed by something you did recently. It's a byproduct of things into the past. So I just want people to to take away from this is do not hit the panic button. Don't just hit eject. You have to step back and see the whole picture before you change things.
0: I have a, I think there's a, a few people listening who have just hit the panic button and want to change everything. So yeah. I think they need to hear that, and we have to remind. I mean, I have to remind myself of that a lot after races that don't go well. I mean, not it's not just like nobody's immune to this. When is the last time you were tempted to like hit the panic button? And then we're like, no, after Bracken. every race that doesn't go well. <laughs> well, right, right. I mean, the
1: most recently after Hyrox, I got done and think, man, I just I'm not. That that was. I'm, I'm all wrong. I've got to read not No, 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 hold up. It, but it's equally bad to do it after a good race. I've been guilty of having a good race. I did this after a stadium race once. I had such a good result at the stadium race that I looked into what did I do the month leading up, and I'd try to replicate that. I've been there. It's, it's logical, but it's flawed again. That month stacked really well on top of what I did the six weeks prior to that month. But when I replicated that training block, I only did that four-week month. I didn't do the previous six weeks, and so it didn't hit home the same. It didn't affect the same change in my body because I didn't do the same thing, even though in my mind I did. And I did that three times before I finally caught on. Having a good race and saying, oh, this is my thing now. This is what I need to be doing. So common among athletes. Oh, this is just what I need to do. Well, is it though? really is it or is it eight weeks ago what you need to do again
0: i think that's a trap a lot of people fall into is they have a good race and then they just try to emulate the same exact cycle before the next one that matters and then maybe it works once or twice or you get lucky here and there but it has almost very little to do with those last few weeks or what you do race week like i gotta do this workout race week because it worked for me last time it's really Mm. it's completely wrong it's completely wrong it is it's it's, it's going further back it's a very good point it's And so the
1: mandatory step, the course of action is I have a result that's either good or bad and I want to read into it. So I must take a step back and look minimum three months back into my training, Um. ideally an entire year, but make sure you see the full picture and you analyze trends. And if you can't analyze a trend, you can't read into it. And if you can analyze a trend, you can't read into the most recent piece. You have to take the whole picture. It's mandatory. Yep,
0: it's a good lesson right there. Any others that come to mind? I think we gave them enough today.
1: I think so too. I was worried Maybe we weren't close. Gonna... How we started? Which with is? the last first piece of advice, which is: there's nothing you can do in the first two to five minutes of a race for a race that's longer than 15 minutes. Yep, that's going to uh, guarantee your success. Other than don't blow up.
0: Yep. The only thing going on too hard.
1: You can't win it in the first mile, but you can absolutely lose it there.
0: Yep. Exactly right. Anything you do that overextends yourself in the first two to five minutes is going to catch up with you twofold in the whole last half of the race, and it's never really worth it.
1: Well, this did bring up a question that I got from four athletes this week, Kirk. Wow. How do I know what's too much in the first mile? And the only answer to that is more training. That's the only way you're going to know Yep. more training and more racing. You have to become so intimately acquainted with your effort or your heart rate or your pace or all three that there's no guesswork. It was just like my junior year of cross country. When you get back out on the course and the adrenaline's pumping and there's people around you and you're not used to training around people, everything feels different and you can't trust it. So if you don't know, go sign up for a bunch of local races, like two or three weekends in a row and go rip it up three times in a row and get a pulse on what does that feel like for me. Yeah. I can't answer to you what it feels like. You just got to go fi- feel it.
0: Yeah. I agree with that. We have the we are we're lucky enough to have raced so much over our lives that we have a better grip on it than some, but I think there's a, there's a time and a place for that like jamming races in just to learn how to manage your effort. Yeah. yeah. All right, man. I was worried we weren't going to talk for 2 hours on this and I think we could, I can think of a handful of other stories I could have thrown in there and lessons learned, but yeah, we gave him the good stuff. Hopefully it's a good start for people. Yeah, I agree. And let's try to get a guest next week. What do you think? Eat a message during this. All right. I think we got it for next week. All right. Well, stay the course, well, I'm guys. I'm going to go do a call
1: right now with Mick. It says Geronimo now.
0: Yeah. That's always been his Facebook name. I've never messaged him on Facebook. Hmm. That might be why I so, think it's so anyways, students can't find them. Giving me a little, uh,
1: a little. I'm going to him for advice on a call here.
0: I like it. Should record that. So you,
1: just a good reminder. You always have to seek out information. Mm-hmm.
0: All right, guys. Well, thanks for listening. We'll, we'll see you again on Tuesday. Ciao for now.